Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. What is really a joy is um, to be gone and to be able to participate through uh, the broadcast and to be fed by your shepherds. You take for granted having shepherds that work hard and that love you and who are conscientious in their preaching and teaching. Don't ever take that for granted. God has given us wonderful gifts in this church. And it just blows me away to be up there in Michigan and to sit under Jody and Max and Stephen and and then hear the announcement about the fact that even a guy like Phil, I mean, Phil, you know, they're actually proposing that Phil be an associate pastor. I guess I'm an idiot. I didn't know that you were a pastor. Are you a pastor? (laughs) And I mean, I mean, Phil. And so here you have these men serving you. And you think of the men that have gone out from here. And what a superfluity of naughtiness we have in this church. Now that's a joke. That's from the King James Version. That's my funny thing about why the King James is in our language today. You know, and a superfluity of naughtiness. But we have a superfluity of wonderful pastors. And we're not even asking Pastor Tallman to preach. I don't know why you're sitting back there. You're supposed to be up here. You encouraged me, and now you're way back there. What? I have hearing aids. Oh! (laughs) The dignities of old age. (laughs) So anyhow, it's wonderful to be away and to be able to participate with you in worship. It's not like being here, but it's pretty close. And uh, just to see how God has provided for us as a church. And so don't you take this church for granted. You love this church. You pray for this church. You pray for your elders and your pastors. This last week I wasn't able to come because I just came out of quarantine today. And so they were meeting Thursday night for the, past, for the elders meeting. And about half an hour into the meeting, I sent a text to Max and to Jody, and the text said, nanny, nanny, poo, poo. (laughs) You know, I was so happy to not have to be at the elders meeting. When I was a young pastor, oh, we have an elders meeting. And I'm like, we have an elders meeting. Oh, I love elders meetings, don't you, Richard? You just love deacons meetings, right? They're what we live for, right, Richard? (laughs) Oh, he can't hear. (laughs) Okay. Now, I want to say one other thing that's been very much on my mind. You know I've been writing about pornography. If you don't know that, go online to Warhorn and read what I've been writing. There is one thing I haven't written yet, and that is you teach your children to work. When everything is said and done about nakedness, 
the one thing that's true is the best antidote for you copping a high from naked flesh is work. Every young man should have the privilege of going to bed every night tired. And that requires you as parents to teach your children to work. And to work until they're tired. Because there's no privilege like being tired at the end of the day for a man. And I know that this sounds basic. But you know, God actually has made men pretty basic. And I want all of you who are boys to grow up loving work. Just loving it. Because every time you work, you know you're honoring God. Because God worked, and on the seventh day, he rested. And in heaven, we're going to work. And so those of you who are parents, listen to me carefully. You teach your children to work. And there's no way to do that as a dad without yelling at them and making your wife angry. And why should Bob have to do this? You know, why should Bob and Bob Kapowitz and Bob Sands be the finishing school for our children? Why can't we have our children ready to work for them where Bob and Bob don't have to be the ones that fire them? (laughs) You know, the great thing about being a dad is you can fire your son and you still have him. (laughs) Okay, am I done? Is that helpful, Charlie? Right on. All right, okay, now... Let's go to our actual sermon text. We're in Romans 9, and Romans 9 is one of the most intense chapters of Scripture. Because Romans 9 is filled with truths that we all think we don't need. We're all embarrassed that God has put Romans 9 into Scripture. And we all make apologies for it, like, well, you know, there's, there's that. You know, and I don't know why God put that in there. I think it was because Paul woke up cranky one day. But there's that. And I remember about 20 years ago reading Calvin talking about the various doctrines of Scripture that we're embarrassed by and that we think we don't need. And just to have him put it that way was helpful to me. You know, because I'd never thought about the fact that I had certain doctrines in Scripture that I thought I didn't need and that they were sort of superfluous and extraneous, you know. They weren't needed, you know. And so I'm reading Calvin, and Calvin says something as simple as the very fact that it's in Scripture means that God has decided we need it. And I thought, now that's helpful, (laughs) you know. If it's in the Bible, we need it. I mean, you know, it's pretty basic, isn't it? So then, in preparing to preach today, I'm asking myself the question, why do we need Romans 9? Assuming that all Scripture is profitable, helpful, you know, why do we need Romans 9? And there are people in this church who have left it in the last year who say, I don't need Romans 9 and I'm not coming back. Now they haven't put it that way. They put it much more piously. But that's basically what they say. And so are they right? Is this, Romans 9, is it, 
if we're going to be truthful, is Romans 9 really, I mean honestly, isn't it really, isn't it really God's failure? Isn't it really, Romans 9, God not quite living up to my expectations? You know? I mean, if I were to create a God, wouldn't I have a different kind of God? Especially if my children are not walking with the Lord. (laughs) You all with me? If we are honest, if we are honest, we will admit that in Romans 9, God disappoints us. He doesn't quite rise to the level of what would meet our approval. I remember somebody like Dan Rather. It wasn't Rather. It was one of these handsome faces that knows how to read words off a page. You know, can you imagine dying and standing before God? What did you do with your left? Well, I was handsome and I read words from a page. You know, well, I was an actor. I always played somebody else. And I always have these fantasies about if you were an actor or an actress, what would you say to God? What did you do? You know, I gave you gifts. Well, I, I was very good at playing other people. That's essentially what Ortega Gasset says about, uh, what's his face, the German guy? Huh? Yeah, Goethe. You know, he says, Goethe never lived his life. He was always living somebody else's life. Jürgen says nobody was as much a god to the early 20th century Germans as Goethe. And so if we're honest with each other and we think about what God should be like, and I remember this newscaster saying that his God was never angry. I remember distinctly, I could show it to you on my computer if I opened it up now and searched. He said, my God is larger than that. My God is not angry. Okay, think about this. And then you think about us as Christians, and you think, if we had a designer God, how would we design him? And you know, Aaron, you're laughing. But you're laughing because you know that you could design God. You know that that's something that you are so proud that you might just do that. And so am I. And so I want all of you to think about what God would be like if you designed him. And then I want you to realize that he would bear no resemblance to Romans chapter 9. It is so frustrating to preach and to know that you're speaking to people who think they approve of what you're preaching. And I know you don't. And it helps this week that we had somebody call in and say, nope, she's gone. Why? Well, because of Romans 9. And so it wakes me up and I realize, you know, there are a lot of you here that really don't approve of God. And so what is this God like? All right. And why would God tell you what he's like if this is what he's like? So let's assume this is what he's like. Why would God want you to know these secrets about him? 
After all, there are lots of secret things about God that he doesn't reveal. They belong to him. That's what Deuteronomy 29 says. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children. So why does God want your children to know Romans 9 about him? Are you with me? And so let's, let's answer the question. Now, the Apostle Paul has people who are just, and these are Christians. These are Christians in Rome. The Apostle Paul has a lot of people who are not pleased with what he's saying in Romans 9. That's the whole reason Romans 9 exists. And he keeps dealing with their objections, okay? They were honest. They said, not this, not this, and that is bad, and that's bad. And so he just, one by one, goes through their objections. So the first objection is, the Apostle Paul is told, God hasn't kept his word. And what's behind that is that God said he would be a God to Abraham and his descendants after him. He would be a God to the children of Israel. That he would take into covenant those who circumcise their children and their servants and the members of their household. He was their God. He was in covenant with them, all right? And so they say, wait a second. The covenant is like willy-nilly. It's leaving some of God's people behind and it's including the dirty Gentiles. God's not keeping his word. And so what, it, what the Apostle Paul does is he goes the whole way through Scripture and he shows again and again and again in the book of Romans that God, God is not a sacramentalist. That God is not content to have the foreskin. That God demands the heart. Are you with me? And so not all Israel is Israel. And so the Apostle Paul deals with that objection. They say that God's not keeping his word. Oh, yes, he's keeping his word. This has been the consistent theme of Scripture from the very beginning. God makes a distinction between those with circumcised foreskins and those with circumcised hearts. And so that's not enough for them. They still have another objection. And so the second objection is that God is unfair or unjust. First, it's that he's a liar. Now, he's unjust. He's not fair. They, what should we say then? There is no injustice with God. So this is their argument. God's not fair. God's not just. And the Apostle Paul's answer to the second objection is, what should we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? And then he says, what? You remember? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. A lot of eyes there. You're not supposed to use eyes when you write. But apparently God is not bashful. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's like some stupid idiot says he's not going to do what Paul tells him to do. And so Paul says, this is my business, dude. You're going to work here. You're going to do what I tell you to do. And remember, when God says these things, God is not saying that he has the power 
to show mercy or not. It's, it's not about power. What is it? It's about authority. It's about authority. I will have mercy on whom I choose to have mercy. You going to argue against God having the authority? So then the third objection is it's God himself who pleases himself when he chooses himself to withhold mercy and compassion from this or that man. So verse 19 says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? (laughs) You know? So you start out with the issue he doesn't keep his word, then he's not fair, and now he's pleasing himself with his choices. How can he fault us when he just simply implements his choices? Okay? And so how does the Apostle Paul handle this objection? This is the third now coming from the Christians in the church in Rome. How does the Apostle Paul handle this? Well, the Apostle Paul says what? It's a very sophisticated argument. It it is extremely sophisticated. It's the kind of thing you'd learn in a philosophy class. You'd have to be well-educated to understand this answer. And here it is. On the contrary... Who are you, old man, who answers back to God? Come on, laugh. On the contrary, who do you think you are, old man, to answer back to God? Now, does that strike you as a logical, rational, reasonable response? Is that the kind of response you give to your children in your home? Yeah. On the contrary, you, who are you, punk face? I am your mother. And you're going to question me. <laughs> your eminence. <laughs> well, I guess I had not fully understood who you were. But you've set me right. Wop, 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 wop. I mean, generally, I'm not in favor of backhanding. Especially for men to do it, it's kind of pathetic. But every mother better know how to backhand. So here we have the third objection. And the answer to the third objection is, who do you think you are, oh man? (laughs) I just love it. You know, there's the old saying that the heart has reasons that reason doesn't understand. And and I'd like to twist it a little bit and say the mind has logic (laughs) that that simply consists of who do you think you are? Now, I'm looking at certain people here as I preach, right? Okay? Okay? And because I love you, and you know I do, I know you love me, right? We love each other, right? I know, I know this is true, okay? And man, I'm telling you, there are a number of you that this is maybe the most helpful statement in all of Scripture. Who do you think you are, oh man? You know, sometimes 
Sometimes, sometimes Daniel needs to hear this. Sometimes Daniel's pretty impressed with himself. You notice this? Daniel's noticed it. He has to keep saying to himself all the time, he's a Jew. And he has to keep saying to himself, who do I think I am? Tell him, it's true. You know, you notice it when he's up here leading music, you know, he's sort of bouncing around. That's not Jewish. He does that to remind himself that he ain't who he thinks he is. It's very helpful to humiliate yourself because it reminds you that you aren't really nothing. That's the whole point of worship, you know. You realize this. The whole point of worship is to give you an opportunity to humiliate yourself. On the contrary, who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? And then, because he thinks maybe he hasn't sufficiently dealt with the objection and maybe they're still full of themselves, <laughs> you know, they still have sort of this movement in that direction. He says, okay, I'm going to add something else here because some of you aren't just convinced by who do you think you are that answers back to God. Okay, 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 I'm coming again. And then he says, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? From the same womb, Jacob and Esau. Now, let me remind you, these are the objections of the people of God. If you think that you don't have any of these objections, you are a liar. These are the objections of the Christians in Rome. You have these objections. Therefore, you need to hear these answers to you. You need to be told, who do you think you are, O man? Then you need to have him tromp on you by saying, doesn't the potter have the right to make from the same lump of clay? an honorable vessel and a dishonorable vessel. And when you hear the word vessel in this text, you should think tool. It's helpful. Doesn't God have the right to make from the sun lump of clay a tool that's for honorable uses and a tool that's for dishonorable uses? Doesn't God have the right to use you in either an honorable way or to use you in a dis to make you to be used in a dishonorable way. Doesn't God have the right to do that? And then he continues. And this is God's word, and it's eternally true. It's our text this week. Romans 9, 22 to 24. What if God although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, 
endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, whom, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, when you listen to the beginning of this and you hear the words, what if, you can think it's a hypothetical. You know, he's positing something that may not be true, but it's helpful to think about it. But that's not the meaning of the Greek here. The Greek here is simply transitional. And so it's as if he were saying, and and what if God or, and why shouldn't God or good reader give this some thought, okay? That's the meaning. It's not a hypothetical construct. Don't think it is because it begins what if. And what is it that he calls us to think about? Well, first he calls us to think about God being willing to demonstrate his wrath, Okay, the Apostle Paul wants us to meditate on the fact that God is not embarrassed by his anger. As a matter of fact, God's anger, his wrath, is one of God's perfections. It is an attribute of God and all of God's attributes exist in perfect harmony with one another eternally. And so God's wrath is not actually in competition with his mercy. They exist perfectly together. And what it says is, God, what? Is willing, what? God is willing to demonstrate his wrath. And not only that, but God is willing to demonstrate his wrath in power. Those are the two attributes of God, God's omnipotence and his wrath. And they're put together here, and what we're being told is, he is willing, God is, to demonstrate both his wrath and his power, to make his power known. Now, do you believe this about God? Or do you think that this makes your God a little bit smaller? that he has wrath, and that he has power. I mean, I can't think of anything that women complain more about on the internet today than, than wrath and power. It's, it's kind of like the perfect spot where women focus all of their hostility towards the universe is power, you know, and so you've got, you know, the, well, never mind. But I mean, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, if there's one infuriating thing about being a woman, it's the fact that the man has power that the woman doesn't have. I mean, let's be honest about this. Woman has vulnerability, man has power. (laughs) And now, here we're supposed to worship a God that's willing to demonstrate his anger and his power. I mean, this is the very definition of an abusive religion. Anger demonstrating itself in power. 
that sounds like a God for uh, what's her name? What's her name? Sartre's wife. Second sex, Simone de Beauvoir. That sounds like exactly what Simone de Beauvoir wrote the second sex about. It's a God who is wrathful and demonstrates his wrath and his power. That is ground zero of the creation and foundation of feminism. Okay? So if you hate a God who is wrathful and is not embarrassed by it and who will show it in power, this is the God for you to hate. Because he, he's not ashamed. He's not hesitant. He's not embarrassed. He's not apologetic. This is who he is. And so if you're going to worship this God, you're going to worship a God who's not in any way shy about being both wrathful and powerful. <laughs> Everything that every mother has tried to keep her husband from demonstrating to her children. Oh, come on. Come on. You still with me? You're not going to deny this, are you? I mean, don't women exist to protect their children from the attributes of God visible in their husband? Isn't that the nature of marriage? Now, I'm not saying that all your husband's wrath and all his power are godly. That's not what I'm saying. And do I really have to go off on a rabbit trail calming you down? Can you just be big girls and big boys and take what I'm saying and think about them as if probably they're right? Okay, suspend disbelief for a few minutes, okay? All right, now listen. God has character. We call the character of God his perfections, his attributes. Two of his attributes are power and wrath. If we're going to be honest and say at what point in Scripture and in salvation history we disapprove of God, we are going to point to the places where God's wrath and his power are visible. We do not approve of it. Have you heard anybody this last week saying sodomy? Funny thing. It's all around us. It's our entertainment. It's everything on the internet. It's like everywhere sodomy. But none of you have heard the word sodomy. Now I wonder why that is. It's been in use for 2,000 years. You look up in the Oxford English Dictionary, and it goes back 2,000 years. Funny thing, God's wrath and his power wipe out the cities. And somehow, the name of the city is not known vocabulary anymore. Oh, well, you wouldn't want to make too big a deal out of that, would you? <laughs> you know, you just want to make a big enough deal that nobody ever says the word sodomy anymore. 
And of course, we've accomplished that. Do you remember what I said? I said that if you want to find the place where every one of us condemns God and judges him, you place yourself where you have in proximity the wrath of God and the power of God. And you disapprove. That God is not the God you serve. And so what we do as evangelicals, as reformed evangelicals, it's insane. If you read what we actually say we believe and compare it to how we preach and how we live and, and what elders are like, there's no, there's no common denominator between our doctrinal statements and how we live. And I mean, we just bend all over backwards trying to make God nicer than he is and trying to hide his wrath and his power. That's why we remove sodomy from our vocabulary. We don't want anybody to think that they should meditate on the fact that God consumed the sodomites. We don't think that's helpful. That may cause people to be angry against God. And if they're angry, they're not going to believe in Jesus. (laughs) I mean, it's insane. If you think what we think, we're insane. God's not embarrassed about his power and his anger. I'm not embarrassed by your father's power and anger. I hate to tell you that. I'd like to see a little bit more of it. Now your mother, down boy, down. You have to trust me. I love them. They love me. Don't worry about them. They're fine. (laughs) What's really sad is how hard we as Christians work to try to hide God's character from others. We're just so concerned that people might get the wrong idea about God. We're so convinced that the things that God reveals in Romans chapter 9 aren't really helpful, aren't really missional, aren't really evangelistic. You know? I mean, be honest. Come on, be honest. Who would ever trot out Romans 9 as a missional chapter? Who would ever think that Romans 9 is the way to open up to people the truth about the universe? One lump, honorable, dishonorable. Not helpful. (laughs) Right? Come on, be honest, people. Come on. Kimmy, you just sit there and you give me this deadpan face. You never help me. Help me. I'm up here struggling. (laughs) Oh, that's a sincere smile. One time Max told me that's her fake smile. So I'm always looking at her, trying to figure, is this, is this Kimmy's fake smile, or is this Kimmy's real smile? That was a real one now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I talk about you in public, probably I'll get a real smile, right? Okay, I'll try to remember to do that. <laughs> so the Bible here tells us, with all our fears and all our insecurities and all our timidity, 
in all our weakness, the Bible says, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and power, and then what does it say next? Do you remember? It says, put up, endured with what? With patience, right? Is that what it says? You can read, right? Is that what it says? No, it's not. Read it. Put up what? With what? Ah, much patience. So now what we find out is that God is completely willing to show you his wrath and his power. He's not apologetic. He's not trying to prove himself to you. Okay? And then it says why he does put up with it. And I, you know, some of you know that I spend in the summer 21 weeks, 22 weeks cutting grass on a lawnmower. And I always listen to Romans every time I do that. And I've done this for what, 10, 11 years now. And I cut a minimum of two and a half, three acres. It's about one Romans. So I've probably listened to Romans, what, 22 weeks for 10 years, 220. I've probably listened to Romans probably over 300 times now. Because I used to cut a lot more than I'm currently cutting. And I tell you that every single time I listen to Romans... I just get cranked at this point in the book of Romans. I get cranked. Where do I get cranked? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his power, to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared for beforehand for glory. And so when I get to that point, I think, oh, this is awful. It's absolutely awful. It's horrible. And you see all around you vessels of destruction. You see it in the social media, you see it in the neighborhood, you see it in yourself. There is so much wickedness in this world that the wrath of God and the power of God should be unleashed against. And only because we have a rainbow has it not happened again. Sort of arbitrary. And then... I'm going along, and I'm fully guilty, and I'm fully convicted. I see it. I'm not apologetic about God's wrath and power. I'm not thinking that I should hide this from people. I'm thinking that this is the truth that is missing from our world today. And then I hit this, and it gives me the reason. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon wrestles of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. And I'm going, seriously? You know, seriously? 
<laughs> In other words, the reason that God is not showing his, his, his wrath and his power is because he's got me um, on exhibit. <laughs> he's delaying. He's putting up with great patience these vessels for destruction so that I can be on exhibit. And you can be on exhibit. What are you supposed to exhibit? <laughs> what are you supposed to put on display? Now, this is where you have to be very careful because many of you think what you need to put on display is what a righteous, moralistic person is like. You think you have to display your ability to live in conformity to the law of God. That's what you think. And so some of you demonstrate the most sophisticated moral calculus that you could imagine. <laughs> and you parade your judgments. One of the worst people in this church that does this is actually a young woman. A young woman. And I mean, she is just full of her judgments about what is right and wrong and who's doing right and wrong and, and how she fits into the calculus of what is right and wrong and who does right and wrong. And of course, the one thing that you never get any sense whatsoever from such people is that they are an object lesson of mercy. <laughs> they have no ability of showing mercy because they don't know what mercy is. What they think they know is how impressive they are to God. And how the elders and the pastors and their wives should take notice of their judgments. <laughs> you know, and it's like, dude, I am not impressed. What's really impressive about you is your obstinacy and your pride. What's really impressive about you is that you have absolutely no self-awareness. You actually think you're better than other people. Do you know what a pain in the rear you are? Do you know we sit in elders meetings talking about you? You're a little punk. And we waste time on you. Because you're so full of yourself, you're running around tramping on people who are sheep. And yet, you're supposed to be an exhibit of mercy. You're supposed to be an example of the mercy of God. You're supposed to be on display in such a way that God is putting up with patience those who will be consumed. Because he wants you to shine! Self-righteousness of religious people is disgusting. And the thing that's so amazing about it is it's usually the people that have the least reason to be self-righteous who are. The more ugly you are, the more self-righteous you are. Did you know that? Or the more self-righteous you are, mm, works that way too. The uglier you are. 
And if I were to dream a dream about a church and say, what is it at the end of my life of working as a pastor that I want more than anything else? All I want is a church filled with exhibits of mercy. Because why? Well, because everybody's safe around mercy. (laughs) Mercy is a very level plane. It's very level. What is it that causes fights and divisions among us? What is it that the disciples did in the upper room right before Jesus gave his life for us? And there arose a striving amongst them as to which of them was the greatest. I don't think the disciples were focused on being exhibits of mercy in the upper room. This morning, in our first service, we had the privilege of witnessing the baptism of Erica Bowles. Do I have to tell you this story? Do you love her so little that I have to tell you the story? If so, I spit on you. That sweet woman, a root out of dry ground, if there ever has been one, has been coming to this church for several years now, and you don't know the display she beautifully puts on of God's mercy. She was baptized this morning. And you don't know her? Shame on you. And when I'm watching our church at worship, and I just look at all the displays of mercy, and if you watch it from a distance through the camera, do you know what you see? Hmm? Do you know what you see at the very center of the camera? You see Anthony? Anthony? You don't know that Anthony is an exhibit of God's mercy? Shame on you. There's no beauty like Anthony in this church. That dude is just plain weird. I'm just so glad he's finally tucking up those earlobes. I was afraid he was going to start tripping on them. Do I need to keep going through this congregation? I've been safe so far because I've chosen two people who don't mind being exhibits of mercy. They know that's what they are. But what about you? Do you know that's what you are? Huh? Or have you forgotten? 
You one of these Christians who says, well, I'm so glad I was born in a Christian home and I never knew a time when I wasn't a believer. And what you're really saying is, I'm so glad I never had to repent of nothing. Because repentance is so humiliating. Unless, of course, it's glamorous. You know, you're an old hell's angel and you, you, you were like a, a homosexual prostitute and you did heroin. And then it jumps from being not something you want to being something that you know you will never achieve. <laughs> you know? I mean, there's a certain point at which repentance is so glorious that it becomes like, you know, like gauges, you know? It's like you wear it. And so what God says here in the text is, he's not embarrassed about his power. He's not embarrassed of his wrath. He's very willing to put them on display. But he's willing also to put up with great patience those who are destined for destruction. The better to show you off, if that is you're willing to be an exhibit of mercy. Now think about this. Why is Romans 9 in the Bible? How is it helpful? The way it's helpful is you have just been put in your place. And now you can decide whether or not that God is your God. Because there is no other God. And if you won't worship that God, you are a vessel of destruction. Because all he's fixated on is his glory, and he'll get glory from you one way or the other. He'll either give him glory by being consumed by his wrath and power, or you will give him glory by being an exhibit of his mercy. And so you take your pick. And you say, well, I can't take my pick, because it says he's prepared them beforehand. I say... You're a liar. You see, no, it's, it's very clear. He's prepared me for destruction. Or he's prepared me for mercy. I say, you're a liar. You're accusing God of evil. No, no, no. It says prepared beforehand. Beforehand means me. Before I'm conceived. I say, yeah, but what you're saying is that because he prepared beforehand you to be a vessel of wrath or a vessel of mercy, that that means that you can't come to him. That's the hidden assumption. All right? And it's a lie. Because scripture is filled with calls from God to you to come to him. The reason you're saying that is not because you believe you can't come to God. It's that you won't. And you say, well, yeah, I won't because God won't let me. I say, no, he says, come. Do you know how many times God gave Pharaoh a choice? Do you remember? Do you remember? Ten. 
And they started low and they went up and up and up and up and up. And really it's 11. Because after the 10th, which was the killing, the execution of the oldest males in the household, he had one other chance. Remember this. He could have let them go. But oh no, he gets on his chariots. And the Israelites are, oh no, oh no, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. And God says, it is over. It wasn't sufficient for me to take your sons. You die. God is willing to show his wrath and his power. And guess what God's people do? I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider thrown into the sea. The women sing and dance. This is the God who is there and who exists. So in preparing to preach, I thought to myself, okay, where in Scripture does it talk about mercy? And so I did a very sophisticated thing. I, I typed the word mercy into the search engine. <laughs> you know? I mean, if you haven't learned to do this, it's helpful. Okay? And I typed it in. And do you know where most or a, a very large percentage of the occurrences of the word mercy are in Scripture? Now, nobody that was here in the first service can answer. Where do you think the Bible has the word mercy constantly? And you want to take a guess? I'll give you pride of position, Pastor Tolman. Nope, nope. That was a good guess. Bad. Nope. Anybody know? Nope. Well, okay. That's good, because yes, that probably is the place that has the most occurrences of the word. But why? Tell them why. Well, because it, it, it's constantly referring to the mercy seat. Okay? But other than that, are you a Jew? Yeah, so... Okay, so, so no, not the Pentateuch. All right, where? Nope. 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 Who said that? Smarty pants. Why? You better get it right, because I'm not giving you credit unless you know what you're saying. <laughs> it was a good guess, but it was a bad guess. Now, she's right, but why? Why is she right? Think about it. She said, Matthew. And it actually isn't Matthew, it's all the Gospels. Now tell me why. Do you know why? 
Do you know what everybody cried out to Jesus? Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Over and over and over again in the Gospels. Have mercy on me. (laughs) I learned that today, so don't be humiliated that you're learning it today. I had never realized. And do you know what happens again and again and again when the blind, the deaf, the dumb, the poor, the demon-possessed, the mother of this life, do you know the cripple? Do you know what happens again and again and again when they cry out, have mercy on me? You know what happens? Huh? Yeah, he gives them mercy, but nah. What happens? Listen, this is what happens. All the Presbyterians say, shut up! There must never be in this church the slightest humbling and censoriousness and calculus and posturing and pride and arrogance and and moralism that silences a sinner calling out to God for mercy. Jesus doesn't always rebuke it. But you look it up and you see how Jesus deals with those who try to silence cries to him for mercy. And so, I'm going to end with this. What is the difference between you as a tool demonstrating the mercy of God and the man, the woman, the boy, the girl who is a tool for destruction. What is the difference between you and those prepared for destruction? What is the difference between you and them? What is the difference? John Calvin says this. He says, the elect differ from the reprobate. God's people differ. God's people are different from those who God has prepared for destruction. Only, the only difference between you and those who are under the wrath and power of God is the fact of their deliverance from the same gulf of destruction. The only difference between you and those who will be consumed by the wrath of God is that you escaped the gulf of destruction. That's it. That's it.
This, moreover, is by no merit of their own. (laughs) You, You get that. In other words, you didn't deserve it. It's not anything you did. It's not the merit of your own. But by the free goodness of God, it must therefore be true that the infinite mercy of God towards the elect will gain our increasing praise when we see how wretched are all those who do not escape his wrath. You understand what he's saying here. The only thing that separates us is we went the opposite way at the gulf of destruction. And not through anything we'd done ourselves. You hear this. This is what he's saying. And then he says, and because of this, we're going to sit there and we're going to look at that gulf of destruction. And we are going to be blown away by the distinction between those that God has brought to himself and those he hasn't. As we watch their destruction. God's perfections bring him glory. All of them. Don't ever apologize for God's wrath and his power. Don't ever apologize for God's holiness. Don't ever apologize for God's justice. You may celebrate his mercy. There is no necessary connection between you apologizing for his wrath and you celebrating his mercy. The man who is most able to be an exhibit of the mercy of God is the man who is most faithful at the point of God's wrath and his power. And so my final appeal to you is, and to you who are young, starting adulthood, don't ever believe what anybody tells you about God. Don't ever believe what anybody tells you about God. God's word is true. Though all men are liars... And if you do not come to this God who sent his son to appeal to you to come to him, he will not apologize for his wrath and his power over you. And you will not bring God glory by being an exhibit of his mercy. You will bring him glory by being an exhibit of his wrath and his power. And there is no third choice. And that is the good news of the gospel. (laughs) And those who come to him, what did Jesus say about those who come to him? Huh? You feel like you're a mongrel, right? You feel like you're ill-bred and there ain't nothing good about you, right? 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 You see yourself as you are, right? And so you think to yourself... I ain't going to come because I know this is a show game about the time that I have this much faith to maybe, maybe, maybe come to God. Ain't got to stop on me. I can't trust him. 
He's prepared me beforehand to be a vessel of destruction. And God says what to you? What does he say? Come on. Come. And you say, eh, eh, I ain't going to get my hopes up. I learned my lesson. My father just stopped on me every day of my existence until I left his home. And I'm not going to put any hope in a heavenly father. And his son, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, says to you what? He says, come. And then he says, those who come to me, I will never cast out. Do you know why my hand is up? Hmm? Hmm? I don't see any other hands. I don't see any. What about you? What's with you? What's with you? Oh, apparently you don't need God's mercy, huh? Huh? You just want to be cool. You're a young boy. Boys have to be cool. No, no raised hand for you. No, you're going to be humble. You're not going to claim that you need God's mercy. Now, don't worry about me. I'm not going to make a federal case out of you not raising your hand. Or I did, and I'll stop. (laughs) But I mean, guys, this is what worship is. Worship is us forgetting about what people think of us and putting our hands up and saying, I'm in. I'm all in. And that's why worship is embarrassing. Because we're not thinking about ourselves. I'm here to be an exhibit of mercy. You know, it's hard to say which hymns I love best. Okay, but I mean, and can it be? And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me, who him to death pursued? Amazing love! How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin. And then all of a sudden, my chains fell off. And my heart was free. And yeah, I rose up and followed him. You know, I mean, it didn't take a whole lot of brain to do that one. I was in there in chains. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, yeah. No condemnation. Now I dread. Jesus Christ is all in all to me. Alive in him, my, come on, living head, source. That's what the feminists say, it just means source. Doesn't mean nothing. 
Okay. Alive in him, my living source. Alive in him, my living head. Would you go ahead and put it up and then I'll stop. There's a hymn that's been going through my mind all day today and nobody knows it. I didn't realize you didn't know it. But this is the hymn that comes to my mind. You know the little tune, the little ditty. Depth of mercy can there be. Do, 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 do. Do, 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 do. See, it's very humble. It's very simple. Now, here are the words. Depth of mercy. Can there be mercy still reserved for me? Can my God his wrath forbear? Me? The chief of sinners spare. Heaven find me on my knees. Hear my soul impassioned, please. Depth of mercy. Can there be mercy still reserved for me? Now incline me to repent. Let me now my sins lament. Deeply my revolt deplore. Weep, believe, and sin no more. (laughs) Heaven find me on my knees. Hear my soul in passion, please. Depth of mercy. Can there be mercy still reserved for me? Mercy still reserved for me. Father, we love you. And we pray, Father, that you will remove the obstacles of our pride and our moralism and our censoriousness and our self-love from this church. That this may be a place where there is no one who is not an exhibit of that depth of mercy that you are holding in abeyance the judgment of the wicked in order to parade. We love you, Father. Use us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.